Welcome to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast, a show helping you find better ways to live, run, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. The website for the show is paleorunner.org. I wanted to let you know that I'm offering coaching through Google Helpouts, over Skype, and on the phone. I've been running for 17 years, and I've learned that by running less and focusing on key workouts, you can reduce injuries while getting faster. Over the past couple of years, I've set personal records in the 5K through marathon, while running less than 25 miles per week. If you're interested in getting help running faster on less mileage, go to paleorunner.org slash coaching and schedule a help out with me. I'm here today with Graham Turner. Graham is an endurance coach, sports nutritionist, and author of Perpetual Motion Running. Graham, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to chat to you. Graham, so your book is called Perpetual Motion Running. What does that actually mean? Basically, what it means is that if we look at the way that the body manages and stores energy, um, so things like potential and kinetic energy, um, momentum, etc., it's how you can actually use those different energy sources to actually create um, much more efficiency when you run. So instead of having to, to physically create a lot of energy, it's actually harnessing what's there and um, the cover of my book is actually a picture of a a Newton's cradle and it's kind of a a, a very good analogy for what it's doing of actually storing and releasing energy. Okay so you know what's interesting is uh, when I first started uh, emailing with you you told me that you didn't actually don't have any cartilage in one of your knees and that this way of running that you describe actually allows you to keep on running without having that cartilage. Can you tell us more about how this type of training or running would help with that? Yeah, that's right. It's actually um, both knees that I had the cartilage removed um, about 19 years ago now. And in fact, my left knee, I've actually got um, bone-on-bone arthritis. Um, now, I should say that that's not from running. That's actually from uh, previous sports that I used to do. Um, and I think part of the problem that a lot of people get is that things like cartilage is not designed to be a shock absorber it's designed to be a hinge so by looking at how the body moves and actually using the knee as that hinge rather than a shock absorber it actually allows me to to run quite freely and actually run fairly pain-free wow so you actually had your cartilage removed was that was that uh sort of in vogue as neat pain treatment at the time or or is that standard tr- treatment no uh, it was pain treatment at the time so basically it had got quite torn up and it was uh, jamming within the knees itself so it was actually to to bring back freedom within the knee and um, it's funny I was told at the time by the surgeon to actually to give up running or I'd need a full knee replacement um, in both knees within 10 years. Um, as I say to people, the best way to get me to do something or learn about something is to tell me that I'm not allowed to do it. <laughs> yeah. So you talk about using the forces of gravity to help you run faster and not necessarily, you know, muscling through your runs. So how does that, I mean, give, give me an example of how that works. Is this similar to the idea of the pose method of run, running? Yeah, sim- similar in a way in in terms of that that center of gravity, I mean, 
Um, in simple terms, most people carry their centre of gravity when they run. Um, so effectively they're sitting down slightly. And what that means is they have to move their centre of gravity using, using muscles um, from behind them to in front of them every step. If you can actually chase your centre of gravity, in other words, have it in front of you, then it's a much more efficient way of, uh, of actually running. Um, I had a, a martial arts instructor a long time ago, and he said that walking is and running is really the act of a controlled fall. Um, and it's something that's always resonated is if you're actually effectively falling and catching yourself, it's much more efficient than uh, trying to carry a, you know, a 20 kilo weight um, behind you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So once you fall and you catch yourself, um, I asked Dr. Romanoff the same question. Don't you have to then use muscle and force to kind of push yourself back up? Or is there some, some I, I still don't totally understand it. You're using some perpetual force of gravity to, 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 to sort of like move your body along without muscling it. So I'm, I'm yeah. a little confused yeah, no. about that. No, and, it, and it's a very good, very good questionnaire, and a lot of people get confused about that. Within muscle, you have what's called a muscle shortening reflex, um, a little bit like pushing down on a spring. So it takes force to push that spring down, but once that spring is compressed, it then releases that energy. Now, what we're using when we are effectively falling forward is it's gravity that's actually compressing that spring. So the gravity is actually compressing the muscle. We then get the release of that energy. So we go from potential energy to kinetic energy to actually release that. And that's where effectively what we're doing is storing and releasing that energy rather than actually having to create it. Um, what a lot of people make the mistake of is that they do uh, push when they run. So they'll push off the ground. A simple way to kind of change that mindset is to think about lifting the knees rather than actually pushing off the ground. And in that way, you're actually using a lot more of that stored energy. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry, and I should, should go on then. That's actually where cadence becomes important because that stored energy has an amount of time before it's released. So by actually speeding up our cadence, speeding up our ground contact time, we're actually getting more of that, in simple terms, that bounce reflex. Okay, so the goal uh, with this style of running is to, well, I guess with any style of running, is to get as much free energy as possible. And I think you're just trying to capitalize on that with making some minor tweaks to your run form. So what would you say to a new runner who comes to you? Uh, what are some of the most common things that uh, we would need to change to become more efficient? There's generally generally two areas, right? and, and obviously every person is, is different. Um, but generally, the first two things that I find is changing the hip position, and that does two things. That uh, helps bring that centre of gravity more forward in the body. Um, and it's quite interesting that if you just were to stand up and try and bring your hips forward, um, you'll find that the weight moves more towards the front of your feet away from your heels. So that, that's the first one that I typically look at with people. And then it's look at, well, what's actually inhibiting that energy? What, what's acting as the break? So are they overstriding, things like that? So then look at lifting their knees 
um, rather than stepping out, etc., and things like that. Um, the other thing I should mention, because you mentioned about the energy that's stored when you're with that falling reflex, um, the other way that a muscle works is also the opposite, that there is a stretch-fire reflex as well. So when you lengthen the muscle, it will also then help contract that muscle and pull that through. So by focusing on that hip position, you actually create stored energy as well within uh, within the psoas, within the top of the rec fem to create more free energy. So that, that focus on that hip position is kind of the almost the silver bullet in terms of managing the energy within the body. And is this type of running something that we can learn uh, directly from your book or do we need to coach to uh, watch us run? There's kind of two factors there. So within the book, I talk about obviously the, the science of that. I talk about a number of drills. Um, a lot of people it's can understand the theory but need to develop the functional strength to be able to actually do that, um, to hold that position. And so all those things are obviously within the book. Nothing really beats someone looking at what you're doing now. Um, people are really bad at spatial awareness and what they think they're doing when they run, it, it's very rarely what they're actually doing. So whether it's someone that knows what they're doing looking at it or just actually videoing it yourself and going, oh, wow, I feel like my hips are here, but when I look at them in the video, I can see that I'm still sitting down um, is obviously a value. Mm-hmm. And, you you know, we mentioned at the beginning that you don't have any cartilage in your knee, and so um, that gives a lot of hope to people who have knee problems or who have had knee surgery. Now, can you actually say that you no longer have any pain? I can say that I no longer have any pain. Yeah, wow. that, that's absolutely true. Um, it's a combination of the run technique, obviously the strengthening exercises, and also from an arthritis perspective, um, my diet as well is also um, a fairly important factor there. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about your diet a little bit. Uh, tell me about what you're doing now or what you're doing to help, uh, you know, heal your knee. Yeah, the main, the main focus that I have is really on avoiding all the inflammatory foods. Um, and so obviously around things like the, the grains, um, really strong on avoiding those, anything with the processed sugar, um, the nightshade families. I also even find a, a lot of the artificial sweeteners, so in some of the you know, Diet Coke and things like that, um, actually cause inflammation within the knee. So first focus is on taking out all those inflammatory foods and then it's looking at either eating or supplementing with the anti-inflammatory foods. So um, I eat a lot of fish oil, um, use a lot of grass-fed butter, which I know isn't strictly paleo, but I do find that it actually helps with that inflammation. Wow, okay. And how long have you been doing that sort of diet? been doing that diet now probably for about five years um i'm really not a fan of drugs um and so if there's a way to me drugs are actually typically masking something that you're introducing into your body that you shouldn't um so rather than look at the drug solution you know like even an ibuprofen or whatever um was just a lot of trial and error around the different foods okay 
Wow. And is this something that you use with your athletes as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, especially those that have any kind of you know injury, op- have to have an operation, anything like that, is to really focus on, you know, l- inflammation in the body is a good thing um, in terms of it's the way your body marshals its re- uh, resources to fix a problem. Don't go diluting those resources by introducing all these inflammatory foods. Mm-hmm. And um, is this a pretty low-carb diet that you're following then? Yeah, it is. Um, I have experimented with ketogenic diets um, and things like that. Um, I've found for me going too low-carb, I tend to get um, issues with endurance around um, too low sorry, too low blood sugar and things like that. So I use about 50 grams of carbohydrates a day, but they're things like uh, sweet potato mash that I've made with tonnes of butter. Um, so those type of foods rather than uh, any high glycemic index carbs. Okay. And how about some of your top athletes? Are they able to get away with that small amount of carbs as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So a lot of the... Uh, the Ironman guys we've really kind of got them away away from that. Um, I mean, any you know any endurance event where you go above two hours, you've got to use lipids rather than glycogen. And so, by getting them more and more efficient at burning fat rather than relying on glycogen, it allows them to actually sustain a higher output for longer. So, especially for the Ironman guys, it's a, a really um, really important part of their training. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. That's interesting. That I mean, sometimes you hear that as you start training more, you're going to need more carbs, but you've found the opposite. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you do you do need a small amount of carbs, especially um, if you're backing up multiple training sessions where you are going to be using glycogen within those sessions. Um, but say your your long term fuel source is not not sugar your long-term fuel source is fat and that's what you need to get uh, get efficient at utilizing mm-hmm. and as a coach you focus on uh, muscle over miles and you try to get the most efficient uh, amount of running in with a few with fewer amount of miles can you tell me a little bit about your approach to training yeah it, it's a good a good question and I, I think it comes down to you know when I first started doing triathlon I was um working in the IT industry, I was traveling with a family, etc. So I didn't have 20 or 30 hours of training a week um, or time available. Um, so it, it really got me interested in, well, how can you get the same adaption within the body using a small amount of time versus a large amount of time? So to give you an example, how can you get the same increase in red blood cells in 30 minutes that would normally happen over a two-and-a-half-hour run. So it's looking at things like using interval sessions, using anaerobic sessions, things like that. Um, The other thing that I look at is uh, I always say that going for a long, slow run makes you really good at running a long way slowly. So if you want to increase your speed well, what are you doing within that session that's going to change a particular metric? So how's it going to improve your cadence? How's it going to improve your economy? How's it going to improve your stride length? So rather than just going out and doing mile upon mile upon mile, it's focusing on 
what you need to do to actually get the metabolic adaption. Okay. And how, how small amount of training have you found that you really need to put in to get the desired results? I mean, what, what is sort of the minimum level? Well, it depends obviously on the, on the distance that you're running. I mean, I've had, um, I had a guy last year who was a tennis player who suddenly decided he wanted to run a sub three hour marathon. Um, and he was doing about four hours of training a week for that. Um, and so he, he ran a 258 at um, Gold Coast Marathon. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, an extremely minimalist example. Um, he was very functionally strong, so we didn't have to focus on those things. We could just really focus on that stride length and that cadence. Um, I found with the Ironman guys, I've had a, a few guys qualify for Kona. It's kind of that 8 to 12 hours of training a week. Um, is kind of the numbers that we're talking about. For the half Ironman guys, it's around six to eight hours a week. Wow, that's fantastic. So what kind of workouts would you have someone doing for, say, they're trying to hit that sub-three-hour marathon? Yeah, there's kind of the one key or two key runs I do is um, basically to pre-fatigue the muscles. So whether that's using a, a track session or whether that's doing a weight session. So, for example, on a Wednesday night, we might go out and do uh, 12 by 400s, but then the next morning you're actually doing a marathon pace run. So while you've actually got that level of fatigue within the muscles, that's when you go out and try and hold your marathon pace. Um, I use a lot of the Jack Daniels, the VDOT, numbers around actual pacing for people. Um, I found they're very accurate, but by actually combining and sequencing those sessions together, you can then get more fiber recruitment, things like that. Wow, that's great. Now, what about the longest run leading up to a marathon? There's there's a lot of debate about how far people need to run. What have you found? Yeah, there's there's two two sides to that. So I've had um, people like, for example, the the guy that ran the sub three hour marathon, his longest training run was twenty k, right? And so before his marathon, so that's about twelve miles. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, twelve miles. Um, so that was less than an hour and a half. Yeah. Right? Now, it's a really it's an interesting discussion I get into people about the difference between self belief and self doubt. A lot of people have that are really good runners don't necessarily have self-belief because they've never gone and done it. So how can they believe they can run a sub-three-hour marathon? But they don't have any self-doubt. So if you tell them to go out and run at 4.16 minutes per kilometre, which is what it takes, they go, okay. You do get other people that have to go out and do a long run. Mm-hmm. And so some people will go, okay, let's just go and run for four hours. I don't care how fast, just go and do it. And then mentally they kind of tick the box and know they can. Now, that long run has nothing to do with their body. It's purely to do with their brain. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's some, something Tim Noakes talks a lot about when he's been on the show is the mental component of running is very strong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that... I'd say that kind of lack of self-doubt as opposed to self-belief. Mm-hmm. How about strength training? Do you incorporate that uh, with your athletes? Yeah, a huge amount of strength training. Um, 
so the first thing I got qualified in was actually as a personal trainer. So I really kind of like to understand all of, you know, the way the muscles work within the body. If you look at when people in a marathon, they talk about hitting the wall at the, uh, you know, the 30K, the 20-mile mark. When I see that happen, it's actually typically a slump in posture rather than necessarily bonking. And a lot of that is just their, their functional strength. So big fan of functional strength exercises for the hips and the core um, and also a lot of the power exercises like squatting and deadlifting, etc., just to really kind of build that, that rock-solid core. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how many times a week will you have your athletes doing that? Usually twice a week. Um, but, again, it's the timing. So, uh, for example, I'll get them doing heavy squats on a Friday and then go to the velodrome on a Saturday and try and hold a particular wattage. Okay. And um, so, you- so, sorry, it's an interesting thing with minimalist training. It's not a case of taking 30 hours a week and doing the same thing and only doing a third of that. So, as you can imagine, trying to hold wattage when your, your legs are dead from a squat set um, isn't exactly a fun set. <laughs> right. And do you include any of these exercises in your book? Yes, I do. Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of both the functional and the, the core strength exercises, um, but also explaining how they relate to what you're doing with running. So uh, I always find with people, if they know why they're doing it, they're more likely to, to get in the gym and do it rather than you know, just because they're being told to. Fantastic. Well, Graham, you know, we're coming up towards the end of the show here, and, and I'm wondering, do you have any final tips that you could give our listeners that they could go out and try this week? Um to help them with the running form? Yeah, I think the body the body's actually quite good at running at running naturally. And what we tend to do is introduce a lot of things that actually stop us running naturally, like shoes, etc. So I find just going out, take your shoes off, just run, you know, two hundred yards, whatever, but just notice what your body's doing. Notice what your feet are doing, notice what your hips are doing. Just doing those type of things will actually help people become aware of you know, how the body wants to run um, rather than what they think they should be doing. Fantastic. Well, Graham, it's been great talking with you today, and thanks so much for being part of the show. Oh, thanks, Aaron. really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to another Paleo Runner podcast. If you like podcasts, you're also going to like audible.com. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Kindle, Android, or MP3 player. You can even burn a CD of the audiobook if you like. It's a great way to learn while you're driving in the car or cleaning up around the house. One of the great things about Audible is that if you decide that you don't like the book you've downloaded, you can actually exchange it for another one. They want you to be happy with your order. If you'd like to get a free audiobook download, sign up at audibletrial.com slash paleorunner. You'll get a free audiobook download that you can keep regardless of whether you continue with the service or not. So go to audibletrial.com slash paleorunner. Thanks for listening.